Thanks, sweetie. Morning, everyone. Mrs. Evans's wedding anniversary today. Forty-six years she's been married. Yeah, thanks. Wow. As somebody said to me this morning, he could remain nameless, but his initials are Tom Chow. He said, you've been married longer than I've been alive. Don't take it off. I was going to rip it in half. <laughs> the least said about Wednesday night, the better. I've been presented with some tissues, a flag. I really shouldn't leave that there while I'm preaching, should I? Put up your hand if I should leave it there. Nobody? Put up your hand if I should take it away. You win. I didn't tread on it. I wouldn't do that. And I also have some streamers. It's not yours. I was going to wear it. No, don't wear it. People get upset. Thank you, Tracy, for your love and care and protection of the Queensland flag. <laughs> May God forgive you for every <laughs> idle word that you utter. You are a good girl. Um, it's not only my wedding, our wedding anniversary today, 46 years, 3 o'clock this afternoon. Hmm, lots of memories. Um, did I get Rhonda something for her anniversary? Yes. Did she get me something? No. It's the only reason I'm telling you. We're too old to be giving each other things. It's actually my birthday in a couple of weeks, and yesterday when we went shopping, I saw Rhonda secretly grab a card. And I thought, she's getting an anniversary card. So last night I sat up and I wrote a letter to my wife, yeah. which she got this morning. And then she confesses, but I didn't get you anything. <laughs> and I thought she got me the card. <laughs> So then I thought, oh, it must be for my birthday. May not be either. <laughs> and after this morning, it won't be. Um, and this week, I'm taking a week's break. Pastor Charlie will be around and on board, and we're heading for Noosa. Uh, Kate and Dan and the girls went up, uh, the kids went up yesterday, and so we're going up to be with them and to babysit with them. And so we're finishing our series this morning on 1 John. And Pastor Charlie will finish it next Sunday night. He'll do this in two sections, which, as you all see, is a better way of doing it because there's a lot in this. Uh, there's probably two and maybe even three sermons, but you're going to get it all in one. So I trust that you will be able to get something out of this. We've called it, as you can see, it's in three parts. Having confidence as a follower of Jesus, confidence in believing, 
Confidence in praying and confidence in knowing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for this letter in particular and our travelling through it. Again, Lord, in the midst of reminding us of truth, I pray this morning that you would also open our eyes and give us insight into your word that we might have a deeper, better understanding and because of that might follow you more faithfully and more closely. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said... So, um, as I said, we finished this morning and then we've got a visiting speaker next Sunday, which is Pastor Josh Tan from Hertford Street. Pray for Josh as he prepares. He's going to do a message on Acts chapter 2. And that'll lead us then into about a month we're going to focus upon community, about connecting with one another. And next Sunday we have that members meeting at 1.30 in the afternoon. So Rhonda and I will be back that Sunday afternoon for that meeting. There's a group of people, they travel around, and you've probably met some of them, probably at your place. They call themselves witnesses. They claim that they are witnessing to the truth that God has revealed in his word. They make all sorts of interesting statements, but the one thing they don't do is witness faithfully to what God has declared in his word. They are Jehovah's Witnesses, they call themselves but they're liars, they're deceivers, they utter untruths. It's a religious movement where they call Jesus a God with a little g, not a capital G. In fact, they say that he is mighty, but he's not almighty, that he was created, that he's not eternal, that he's not a member of the Trinity. In fact, there is no Trinity. And that the Son existed in a pre flesh pre-incarnate states as an angel. In fact, he was called Michael. He was created and he was created to die. And when he became a human being, he gave up being an angel and he became a fully human person, a perfect man like Adam was before the fall. When he became a perfect human person, um, he lived a perfect life, a sinless life, and he was able to die upon the cross. So he was a created angel, then a created man, and then finally, both through his baptism and also his resurrection, he has been made a spiritual son that God has adopted him. The Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, deny that Jesus rose physically from the dead. They say he rose spiritually that the body was given in a sacrifice and the body is now gone and God alone knows where it is. They even teach, I think, that he'll be, the body will be brought back and put on display during the millennium or something like that. The Jehovah's Witnesses are around and they are popular. They continue to grow. And like we said a couple of weeks ago, it's because people from the world will listen to them. They will not listen to the truth because the evil one has blinded their minds and so on. Well, John's writing into a similar context. There are a group of people around called, we'll call them Gnostics, in various movements and forms of it. But the thing they had in common was that Jesus was a man and that the Christ 
consciousness, the cosmic Christ, came upon Jesus at his baptism, but left him before he died on the cross. So the Christ did not die. Jesus, the man, died. So Christ did not become human. He was not here in the flesh. And John is writing, of course, to refute that. And he comes now to the end of the letter. And there's a theme going through the letter, just to remind you of a couple of them. That's a bit... Uh, chapter 2, verse 22, John says, Who is the liar? That's the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist. He denies, they deny the Father and the Son. Or chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. This is how you can recognise the Spirit of God. Every spirit, prophet, teacher, that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Um, is that right? Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. That's the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and already is in the world. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children as well. We come this morning to this passage, verses 6 to 21, as I said, in three parts. And there are some difficulties of interpretation, but we'll try to be clear. There's a textual issue that I need to draw your attention to, a very famous one, but one which Jehovah's Witnesses love to particularly pick on. Verse 6 says, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He didn't come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. We can have absolute confidence in the incarnation, that Jesus Christ, that God the Son, became fully human. And we can have absolute confidence in it because it's true. We can be confident in our belief. Being, I'll say religious, being a person who believes in God is essential, I think, to us as humans. We have been made in God's image and we've been made to be in a relationship with God and our hearts are restless, in fact, until they find their rest in him. So authentic Christianity believes the truth about Jesus Christ, which is what John has been emphasising. Authentic Christians obey God's commands and authentic Christians love one another. Christianity is not just some subjective inner experience, some vision or philosophy which is adopted to life. It is objective. It's in space-time history. It has data, historical facts. It was seen, he was heard, he was touched, which is exactly how John begins this letter, that which we have seen and heard and touched. And now John is telling us that God has testified. It's like a court scene. And God, uh, John is assembling the witnesses, and he has three witnesses in this particular concluding paragraph. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He didn't come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. The incarnation of the Lord Jesus is historically factual. It was physical. What does it mean, water and blood? And there are various interpretations, and some of them are quite creative. The reformers tended to think it was referring to communion, water and blood, baptism and communion. And that's, I don't think, correct, though some people 
believe that. Some people allude to the fact that when Jesus was on the cross and they pierced his side with a spear, that what came out? Blood and water. Some people think John is alluding to that. And again, I think that's inadequate. I think the answer is very simple. John is writing in the context of the Gnostics. And the Gnostics said that Jesus was a man, but the Christ came upon him at his baptism. That's the water. But the Christ left him before he died. And John is saying, no, no, this is the one who came by water, baptism, and blood. He died. That's why he emphasises he did not come by water only, baptism. He came by water and blood. (coughs) Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross. And the Spirit is the one who testifies to that. And as you go back and read through the Gospels, you will see that it's the Holy Spirit who is testifying to the Lord Jesus all the way through, through his works, through his miracles. And in fact, John will come to a point in a moment where even the Father is testifying. The Father testified at the baptism, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. At Calvary's cross, the Father testifies by the sky going dark, by the curtain being torn in two and by an earthquake and the tombs being opened. The Father testified on the Mount of Transfiguration. The father testified in the temple in that final week where the father's voice was heard and they thought it was like thunder. Now, the one that we have strong confidence in is Jesus and he came uh, in history. We have his baptism, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. We have all these things that the Holy Spirit has given us in terms of the New Testament truth. And then we come to a textual problem. If you've got your Bible with you, you'll see it probably in a footnote in your Bible this morning. That's where most translations will put it, with a note that says, verse 7 is not part of the original text. And I am very confident to say that that is absolutely true. It's not original. It's in the King James Version. It'll be in the New King James Version. And that's based upon a thing called the Textus Receptus, upon a a few Greek manuscripts. The earliest Greek manuscript we have... And verse 7, let me read it to you. For there are three who bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. Those words, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, which is the only reference, clear, strong reference to the Trinity, which is why the Jehovah's Witnesses love to argue with you when they knock on your door and do you have a Bible? And if it's King James, they'll take you to that. And then they'll inform you that there is only one Greek manuscript that has that in it. And that Greek manuscript dates from the 1500s. And in fact, the story behind it is a man by the name of Erasmus, whom you may or may not have heard of, who's a... um, A scholar back in the late 1400s, early 1500s, was around just before and overlapping with Martin Luther. He was a Catholic scholar, educated in all of the classics, um, one of the brightest men in the world at that time. He travelled internationally, he knew fluent Latin and so on. And he was a Christian, and he was very concerned about reforming the Catholic Church from within. And it's Erasmus who was the first person who translates, gives us the Greek New Testament. Up until then, it had all been Latin. There were Greek manuscripts. He had about half a dozen of them, maybe up to eight. 
And in all the manuscripts that he had were late, but he took those and he wrote a Greek New Testament that he could encourage people to read in the original. And when his first Greek New Testament that he published, the first edition did not have verse 7 in it. Some people objected. They said it was in the Latin text and it should be in. And he said, if you can bring me one Greek manuscript that has verse 7 in it, then I'll put it in the next edition. They did. They brought him a Greek manuscript. Erasmus writes the comment, and true to his word, he put it in the Greek New Testament, which is when it then starts the journey of the Textus Receptus and stays in that line of manuscripts. Erasmus makes the comment that the ink was still drying on the parchment when they brought it to him. He knew that they had fabricated it. Um, but true to his word, he put it in. So that's where verse 7 came from. None of the early church fathers quote it, and as I said, it's not in any of the Greek, early Greek manuscripts, the ones that we rely on. That's, not, um, that's something for you to be aware of, but there are other passages in the scripture where verses have been added, slipped in. Just very quickly, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but if you want to talk more about it, by all means, come and we can chat about it. Mark chapter 16 from verse 9 and following, it's not in the original. John chapter 7, verse 53 to chapter 8, verse 11. You know the woman caught in adultery? Not in the original. Acts verse, chapter 8, verse 37, not in the original. You can see they've been added in, and you can see in our modern Bibles, I'll put a little note down the bottom, it's not in the original manuscripts, and so therefore should be left out. But it's a process, you know, people are traditional and conservative and they're reluctant to take what they think is scripture out of the scripture, but in fact it's not part of scripture. Well, that's the case here with verse 7. I think I've said enough about that. Um, we can be very confident, um, very confident uh, that we have God's word and we have it very well translated in several different translations. There is no one perfect translation we use the NIV because it is both accurate, but it's also readable. And many of you will be familiar with the ESV, which is an updated RSV, which is a more accurate in terms of more formal language, ties it closer to the original way of speaking. The New American Standard is a Christian standard Bible. All of those are outstanding, reliable, true to God's word, and we commend all of them to you. But as I said, we read NIV. It's not perfect, um, but it's helpful and readable. Moving on. Whoops. Somebody wants to hurry up. The spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. John's point is <clears throat> that... Um, if we were in a court of law and we had three witnesses and each one testified and each one confirmed the truth that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh, that he had died and that he had risen, then we would be convinced by it. John goes on to say that we trust the testimony of humans in a court of law or even in daily experience. We trust people all the time. You came into church this morning and you sat in that chair. You didn't test it. Some of you will base that upon previous experience. But it's true across the board, isn't it? We trust people when you get in the car. You trust that they'll, be, they'll obey the law. We trust people in the bank that they'll look after our money. We trust when you go out to a restaurant and we eat their food, we trust that they haven't poisoned us. We have a level of trust in people. And John is saying, we accept human testimony. God's testimony is much greater, much clearer, much stronger. 
And so we need to believe, we should believe, and we can be confident in believing his testimony about his son. The best illustration of us trusting human people is the pharmacy. When you get sick, you go to your GP. They write you a script. You ever seen a doctor's writing? Indecipherable. I don't know why a doctor's script is indecipherable. You must be one exception. Tim Davis, Tamara's husband, he's a doctor. Read his writing. Well, that's silly. You can't read his writing. He, read, he applied to become a member. I'm telling stories out of school, aren't I? He filled in the application form. It's unreadable. <laughs> I had to ask him, what does this mean? Even Tamara didn't know what it was saying. You go to your doctor, he writes a script and he puts on it some chemical formula, some medication that you've got to have. You take that script, like I do, and you go to your pharmacy. You give them the script. Can they read the script? Hmm. You trust they can. <laughs> so they decipher that and they put together your medication and they give it to you. When they don't write on it, they type on it. So it's clear. Take one of these once a day for the next seven days or whatever it is. And you go home, what do you do? You take the medication. Why? Because your doctor told you and the, the pharmacist said it, so you're trusting them. We do that all the time. How much more we should be confidently entrusting our Heavenly Father. And in fact, not to trust the Word of God, not to trust the testimony of Jesus. Whoever believes that Jesus uh, in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. I don't trust what the Bible says. I don't trust what the apostles taught. If you are in that position then you're saying God is lying. For God has given testimony about his son and it's in the scriptures and we can rely very confidently on it. This is John's very simple um, argument. And to reject God's testimony about his son is in fact to reject God, not just to call him... John takes it to another level. He's not just rejecting God, you're calling him a liar. And God can't do everything. Can he? No, he can't. God can't sin. And the scripture says twice, and God cannot lie. Titus and Hebrews. When God speaks, he speaks truth. It's reliable, it's trustworthy. You can bank on it. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Jesus is the one who makes the difference between the two kingdoms, the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of God. The link is Jesus. There is no other link. There is no other bridge. There is no other way. If you have the Son, you're in the God's kingdom. If you don't have the Son, it doesn't matter how religious you are, it doesn't matter how moral you are, it doesn't matter what you say, what you believe, if you don't have the Son, you're not in God's kingdom. Which is why the Jehovah's Witnesses, you see, are false teachers and they are not in God's kingdom. They are still part of the kingdom of this world under the influence of the evil one. This eternal life that God has given us is a gift. It's not a reward and it's not based on merit. It doesn't require any secret knowledge or any secret theological knowledge. It does require some understanding of who Jesus is and the belief in him. The gift that God gives us is eternal life, 
Not even physical death robs us of it. And this gift is only in him. If we have him, we have eternal life. If we don't have him, we do not have eternal life. If you don't have him, like John 3.16 that we sang about, you will perish. You need to repent and you need to believe in the Lord Jesus. And John's point that he's getting to is writing to this church which has had um, influence from false teachers and Gnostics and a lot of misinformation being shouted around. And he's trying to anchor them that you can know God, you can rely on God's truth as it is in Jesus, and you can know something that God wants you to know. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not just hope it, not just think it, but know it. It is God's will for his children to know certain things. We know that God is real. We know that the Bible is true. We know that Jesus is God's son, that he died and that he rose again. We know God's commands and we seek to obey them. And we know one another and we seek to love one another. We know these things. In fact, it's interesting. John wrote his gospel, the same author, in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, I have written this so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life in his name. I wrote the gospel so you could believe, become a follower. And then he writes this letter to those who already believe in the name of the Son of God, but he wants them so that they will know that they have eternal life. He wants us to be certain, sure, confident. I did a very, very quick study, and I can't claim total accuracy, but if you look up the words sure, surely, certain, certainly, words like that in the scriptures, in the English Bible, then it comes to about 400 plus times, 440 plus times. All the way through the scriptures, God is wanting us to know wants us to be certain. And even in 1 John, particularly, just one letter, it's something like 39 times we can know something. This can be mistaken for arrogance because the outside world that doesn't have these truths or certainties based upon the facts that we have in God's word, scripture, they see it as arrogance because they think eternal life is based upon merit or upon good works or upon being nice or moral or whatever. So when we are confident that we are forgiven, that we are saved, that we have eternal life, that we have a resurrection body waiting for us, that we'll be part of God's forever family, they can misunderstand that as arrogance in this age of relativism and tolerance. I love it in the Gospels. In the King James, it's verily, verily. In the modern versions, it's more like, truly I say to you, amen, amen. You read through the Gospels and see how often Jesus says that. I'm telling you the truth. You can rely on this. That's his emphasis. Let's keep going. This is the confidence because of that, because we know him and we know we have eternal life. This gives us a confidence in relating to God and particularly in prayer. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. I'm going to come back and spend a few minutes in there. If you see your brother, and then he gives an illustration of this, of prayer. 
If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that doesn't lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death and I'm not saying that you should pray about that. We'll come to those difficult verses in a second. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask him for anything, he hears us. God hears us. His ear is open and attentive to our cry because we're in his kingdom, because we're his child. Sometimes you observe a child wanting to get the parent's attention, but the parent is reading, watching TV, doing something else, talking to somebody else, and the child is saying, Dad, 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 trying to get their attention. As soon as you pray, you have God's attention. You don't have to get it. You've got it. We have this thing at the base of our spine, at the base of our brain. It's called a reticular activating system, and we all have it. And we all make choices about what's important to us and what we choose to listen to. And invariably, a mother, a new mother, will choose to focus upon the breathing and the cry of her child, which is why you can be in a room with a new, with a new mum and the baby cries, and the mother will hear it. You didn't hear it, but they heard it because their reticular activating system is focused on that. We all have it and we all use it, some more than others. Some people tune into money. That if I had a coin and if you're walking down the street, just drop the coin on the, on the ground or in the shopping centre. If a coin drops on the ground, what do we all do? Dunk. Why? Because our reticular activating system knows what that sound is. Does that make sense? God's reticular activating system is focused on you. You don't have to get his attention, you have his attention. And you can ask him for anything. Now, of course, there is a huge condition in the middle of that, according to his will. Where do I find the will of God? In the word of God. The more I know the word of God, the more I get to know him, the more I understand what his priorities are and what he's therefore wanting to do in our life. We can have confidence in prayer, in approaching God. We don't have to stammer, stutter. Let me remind you of this as well, that prayer is actually coming into his presence and talking to him. It's not talking about him. That's not prayer. It's not thinking, I'll ask God for this. That's not prayer. Prayer is when we are consciously directing our request, our statement to him. And James reminds us, you have not because you ask not. James seems to know, and John seems to be teaching here as well, there are many things that God wants to give us. But in the way that God has set up the governance of the world is, you only get it when you ask for it. There are things that God wants to give you, wants to give you, that he won't give you unless you ask for it. That's an important principle of prayer. So John is emphasising this is the confidence we have. We can come into our Heavenly Father's presence and we can ask him for whatever. And as that is according to his will, he not only hears us, he grants it. The answer is yes. If it's according to his will for you and your life. That should encourage us to be bold in prayer. We have access to God 24-7. 
We can be confident in talking to him. We don't need to stammer stutter. We don't have to be eloquent. We just have to be sincere, honest with him. You don't need to get his attention. You have his attention. And when he answers, he answers usually yes. Usually yes. Unless you're out of step with him. Unless you're not walking closely with him. Unless you're not discovering what he is like through his word. And then you're asking for things which are not according to his will. But as you know him and ask according to his will, then he hears you and he grants it. I need to go on. Sometimes God will answer that instantly, like in Genesis 24, or sometimes there will be delay, like in John chapter 11. But the condition is, if we ask anything according to his will. So take the test. And then he gives us an example of that. Here is something that we can confidently do. If we see a brother or sister committing a sin... You will see your brother or sister commit a sin. We all sin. None of us are perfect. We sin less, but we're not sinless. We've done that before. If you see, not if you hear about it, but if you observe it, what do you do? Pray. If you see your brother or sister commit a sin that doesn't lead to death, you should pray. Pray that God will correct them. Pray that God will give them life. John does not say, if you see your brother or sister commit a sin, tell the pastor so he can deal with it. Nor does he say, if you see anyone, brother or sister commit a sin, call up your friends and tell them about it so you can pray. Doesn't say that. Nor does he say, if you see your brother commit a sin, you should shake your head in disgust and you should condemn them. That's judging them. John says, if you see or if you hear them directly, do or say something wrong, you should pray for them. Provided the sin doesn't lead to death. What does that mean? Well, it is difficult, but I think it's very simple. This is my understanding of it. There are some sins that we commit that leads to death. And there are some biblical examples of it. In my pastoral experience, I know of two examples where this happened. Where a person, a Christian, it's a brother or sister, they have committed a sin, and it's not habitual sin, it's they have committed a sin. It's like a one-off thing that they've done that they shouldn't have done. And sometimes that sin will lead to their death, their physical death. Here is an illustration, and this is all it is. We're walking along life's pathway, and somewhere along the pathway, God has a line drawn. When we get to that line and step over it, then we will die. God knows where the line is, we don't. It is appointed unto all people once to die, and then to go to God and face judgment. What happens if a brother is out of steps with Jesus? Or what happens if they are being disruptive to the cause of Jesus, God can move the line closer. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. All they did was tell a lie. They died. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, people were misbehaving at the communion table. They died. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a man was sexually immoral with his uh, father's wife and 
they handed him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Before he died, he repented. In Leviticus chapter 10, there are two brothers who went into the presence of God, did the wrong thing, and they died. Sometimes God strikes in judgment, and it's the removal of our physical life. And John is saying, if you see your brother or sister commit a sin, what should you do? Pray for them. What happens if they die? Well, don't pray for them. Why don't you pray for them if they die? Because you don't pray for the dead. When you die, your eternal state is sealed. And if you're a Christian, you'll go to be with the Lord. But you will lose reward, obviously. So that's what I think John is saying. There is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying that you should pray about that because we don't pray for the dead. Let's move on. Time is gone. All wrongdoing is sin. And there is a sin that doesn't lead to death. When you see it, pray. Directly. And then John finishes with three we know statements. We know, we know, we know. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe. Jesus keeps us safe. And the evil one, Satan, cannot harm them. He can't touch us. He can't cling to us. He tries, but ultimately he can't do it. We know that we are the children of God. We're in his kingdom, his family, and that the whole world, the whole world, the rest of the world, lies under the control and the influence of the evil one. This world is a mess and chaos, and it's getting worse. Why? Because it's under the control of the evil one. The UN can't bring about peace. Only Jesus can do that. We know that we are the children of God, and we know we live in a hostile environment, spiritually speaking. And we know also that the Son of God has come and that he has given us an understanding. We have spiritual understanding, spiritual insight, so that we may know him who is true. We know the true and living God. We are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. John has now gotten to the end of his letter. He's gotten to the last column in the scroll where he's writing, and he's got one line left, and he's going to say one more thing. And this is probably the last thing that God says to us. There are some scholars, some scholars who posit that 1 John is the last letter to be written in the New Testament. It's the last one that was written by the elderly John. This is his final writing, and it's the final apostle. Here is the one line that God finishes his revelation. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. And you need to think about that, but it's actually very powerful to us. What's an idol? An idol is any man-made substitute for the one true God. That's what the Gnostics were doing. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses are doing. It can be a material idol. It can be a mental idol. It can be a mystical idol. But God's last word to us is keep yourself free from substitutes. Commit yourself to Jesus. Trust in him. Rely fully on him. Don't let anyone or anything take the place of God in your life. That's what John is saying. So, because of the incarnation of Jesus, which is true, we can confidently believe it. God has told us so. Because of the incarnation of Jesus, we can be confident in coming into his presence in prayer and we can ask him for anything according to his will. And he encourages us to do so. And because Jesus has come and he is the one and true and living God, we need to guard ourselves and we can be confident in knowing that we have the truth and we are on the side of truth. May God...
bless you all and help you to continue churn those truths over in your mind and keep you safe. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again for the truth, the reality, the solidity of the truth that Jesus Christ has come into our world, died, rose, ascended, is ruling. One day he's coming and we need to be ready. Help us to hold to these truths and may these truths shape and influence not just our thinking but our choices and may they impact our life to be light in the midst of the darkness. Thank you for the protection we have from the evil one and thank you for the open invitation into your presence to speak confidently to you in prayer. Thank you, Lord, that you hear us. Forgive us and guard us against all idols that come into our world and want to be part of our life. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. And everybody said, Amen. God bless you, everybody. Have a great week. If you would like prayer, then please come forward or where you are, have someone pray with you, but we're happy to pray for you down the front. If you have any questions or you want to talk about any of